I gotta wait for that. Good morning, Springville. Uh, happy Father's Day to all the dads. I am wearing my very colorful gift uh, from my daughter, and it says, uh, best dad ever. I'm just putting that out there. I'm not confirming or denying whether that's the case. Uh, but happy Father's Day. Uh, it is a joy to be able to continue our series, especially after an announcement like that about the big give. Just kind of how we are approaching hospitality, how we're thinking about those next door to us everywhere we find ourselves. I remember an article that I saw from uh, 2014 in The Atlantic called The Importance of Eating Together. And it pointed out just recently in modern kind of Western society that we actually rarely eat together compared to kind of historically in the past and other cultures that are not kind of um, in the West. The average North American eats one of five meals in their car. Just was like, what? I was like, and then I started thinking my week and I'm like, uh-oh, yep, yeah, that checks out, right? The average household in North America eats one meal together every five days on average. And they summarize all of the data. I won't bore you with too many of the stats and the data, but they summarize all the data in this article and they say, quote, not eating together has quantifiably negative effects, both physically and psychologically. And it goes on to describe the impact that it has on children, especially within households, including worse academic performance, overweight or struggles with their own self-image, and as well as increased substance abuse as they go into adulthood. I read another study that said this, adultery is bad for the family, but not sitting down at the table is worse. Now, there might be some hyperbole there that's emphasized for sure, but I think it's true that there's something very relationally meaningful and rich about being at the table with someone. And today in our fast-paced, kind of anxious culture, being at the table, slowing down, and just being human together, arm's length away, making eye contact with other humans is a rare thing that we get to enjoy in our average week. Now, that's not even touching some of the economic and financial factors around food. The average North American family spends nearly as much on fast food as we do on groceries. Americans, now don't knock the Americans, Americans spend $50 billion a year on dieting to fix something that has gone wrong in our relationship to food, whether that's overeating, undereating, or the emotional weight of eating disorders, there's $50 billion going into fixing our relationship to food and with food. That's startling. The average North American family throws away about $1,500 worth of food every single year, just scraps, just things we, that just go bad because Costco. <laughs> And historically, within the church in the last few decades, the Christian church in North America has spent more money on dieting for ourselves than we have on global missions. Okay, now these are startling things. But here's why I say this. I start here to show us that food is more than just fuel for our daily lives. Our relationship to food actually structures our day-to-day -day life. How much we have to think about food. Some of you already are thinking about, stop think, about stopping thinking about lunch right now, right? But so much of our daily rhythms and energy actually goes to food. So food is so much more than just fuel. Our relationship to food, whether it's healthy or dysfunctional, matters greatly. And in our current cultural moment, it's even more important to think about the place of food, but specifically the place of the meal, 
Because in our Western society, we've lost the central significance of the meal. So I want to start with a question. One of Jesus' favorite titles for himself throughout his ministry was the Son of Man. And there are many times where Jesus will say, the Son of Man came to, and then he fills in the blank to try to describe his mission and what he is doing. How would you think about Jesus, think about everything you know about Jesus, whether you know very little or whether you know a lot about Jesus and his mission, how would you fill in the blank, the Son of Man came to what? Maybe some of us would say, well, the Son of Man came to preach. The Son of Man came to evangelize. The Son of Man came to take over and get Rome out of there, right? The Son of Man came to die on the cross for our sins. Yeah, some of those things are true. But there's actually three ways in the New Testament that Jesus himself finishes the sentence, the Son of Man. And in a book uh, by Pastor Tim Chester called A Meal with Jesus, he summarizes it for us. And there's three ways that he finishes that sentence. The first is, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The second way Jesus completes that is, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And the third way Jesus finishes that sentence is the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Now, the first two kind of make sense, right? The first two, you're like, that's why he came. To, to, to serve, not be served, and to seek and save the lost. Makes sense. But then you're like, God in flesh, Messiah, promised throughout history, came to eat and drink. Now, if we miss the significance of that, the eating and drinking is how he accomplishes the what of serving and seeking and saving the lost. And all throughout the Gospels, you can't miss it, that Jesus' ministry of serving others and seeking and saving the lost is accomplished by who he eats and drinks with. And throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus extends his invitation to everyone into the kingdom one meal at a time. I remember one New Testament theologian years ago I read, it said, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus is either coming from a meal, at a meal, or on his way to a meal. And it's especially true in Luke's Gospel. Over 50 times throughout Luke's Gospel, we have Jesus doing something around the table. Here's a quick scattergun summary of them. All the foodies right now are like, I love this Jesus, right? Like I knew I was into Jesus. But throughout Luke's gospel, starts with him having lunch with Matthew and a bunch of swindlers. Then he goes and has dinner at Simon's house and there's a bunch of prostitutes with him. Sketchy. Then he has a picnic in a park and he feeds 5,000 people. That's quite the cookout. Then he stops at Mary and Martha's house for lunch to mourn and to celebrate. And then he has like a public roasting ceremony on the Pharisees at dinner. And then he teaches a parable about the importance of meals and inviting the poor while he's at dinner with the poor. And then he invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house, right? He's like, you know, I don't have a house. Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for lunch, right? For dinner. And then, of course, Luke's gospel ends with a very important meal, the Last Supper. And the Last Supper becomes not just like, well, that's an interesting way for Jesus to close everything he did. It becomes the actual apex and center point of the invitation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is why, if you are a follower of Jesus, what do we celebrate with the Eucharist? 
What do we celebrate with communion? Well, we celebrate the fact that we already have experienced and can remember the work of salvation through the bread and the cup, but that we are also looking forward to the future consummation of that same kingdom when Jesus promises that he will once again drink from the fruit of the vine in the new kingdom. It is not just a way that Jesus points to his kingdom, it's the way that he captures its significance. So understand that Jesus' primary model for how he embodies the gospel, how he speaks about it, how he shares it, how he invites us into it, wasn't primarily large crowds or religious events, but it was a meal with friends. It wasn't primarily around a stage or a pulpit or in an amphitheater, but it was relationships around a table. And even bigger than this, and we don't have time, so I'll just move on and not look at my notes. But even bigger than this, the entire redemptive story of the Bible starts with a meal gone wrong and ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is the meal that will go right forever. Wow, yeah, that's pretty crazy. It starts with God's invitation to experience his generosity by eating of the right tree. And it ends with us experiencing nourishment from him and his presence forever at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, all through the Bible, and especially with Jesus, the experience of salvation and the gospel is expressed as an invitation to what in the ancient world was known as table fellowship. Say table fellowship. Or table hospitality. We'll call it table hospitality just because that's what we've been working with over the last couple weeks. But the idea of salvation wasn't just like, oh, God is judge. You will answer for how you live one day, so get your acts together. That is true. You will answer to how you live, to the God who gave you life. That is true. However, but salvation is wrapped in this primary driving metaphor of us experiencing God's generosity as host. And as we've already alluded to this morning, God actually positions himself as king, yes, but he happens to be our father. And he is the king and ruler of all things, but he's also our dad. And we get to come to the table and just gorge ourselves on the spread of the buffet that our dad has put out to us because he is the one that can provide life. That's the driving metaphor of a lot of how we see salvation talked about. In the ancient world, they understood this more because of table fellowship, because culturally table fellowship was just embedded in the fabric of that society. So let's look at one example in Luke's gospel today. Trust me, I want to look at way more, okay? So self-control, we're looking at one. Praise God. Luke chapter 5, we're going to look at one instance where Jesus centers the table. Starting in verse 27, Luke 5 says this, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, or that's Matthew, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and he began to follow Jesus. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for Jesus at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. But the Pharisees who were watching Jesus' main critics and the scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus replied to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, 
but those who are sick. Here's his purpose again. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then they said to him, but John's disciples fast, and they say prayers. Like, they're like really holy. And those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. All right, pause there. Here's what we're dealing with. When, when, a, when a passage starts with after this, what do you need to know? Well, what happened before this, right? And what Jesus has just done all throughout this section of Luke is he has just shown up and done things that were unclean according to a certain group of people or just completely out of step with their expectations of who God is. And so Jesus goes and touches a leper and heals them of leprosy. And then he goes and he eats with people that he shouldn't be caught dead around. Then he goes and forgives somebody's sin. And the Pharisees are freaking out because they're going, no, no, no. We had the corner lot on religion. It makes us a lot of money and it gives us power. Jesus is messing that up entirely. And then after this, Jesus just ups the ante. Now, I know sometimes we have this image of Jesus. Why, like he's so like just passive and cute and like, like this. He's doing this to aggravate a misconception of who God is. And then he's speaking into it. So he's embodying it and modeling it. And in this particular text, he goes directly to Matthew, the tax collector. Now this is a no-no. And notice what he says to him. He says, follow me. Now that's a technical Hebrew phrase for apprenticing after a rabbi. <clears throat> and usually rabbis would wait outside a rabbi school and like pick like the 4.0 GPA people. Jesus is going out and taking people that would never be caught dead in the synagogue or don't even feel allowed there. And he's going after them and he's going and saying, follow me. Now, I heard a country song this weekend. I, I detest country. Sorry. And the song was about the place where he found Jesus and drank his first beer. And... <laughs> And I thought to myself, first of all, Jesus isn't lost and he doesn't need to be found. But I'm glad, I guess, that you're like working this out. But, but right here, this would be Levi's song of that's the day I found Jesus and then went to my house and drank my first beer. This is that moment for Levi. And notice his response. He drops everything and walks away. Like this is, he's at the tax office working his nine to five and he walks out of the office and throws the keys at his manager and says, I'm following Jesus. Like he quit, right? And his entire life now is upended by turning away from the way that he was going to now going Jesus's way. And we'll get to why that's scandalous in a second. But notice where they go. Sometimes we miss this kind of stuff. Where do they go? Well, Jesus doesn't take him to a classroom to start systematic theology 101. He doesn't even take him to the synagogue to be like, well, here's how to be a good Jew, to hear a sermon and to worship and to sing the Psalms. But he invites them, him to dinner. And if we pay attention to where Jesus spends the most of his time with his disciples, you'll quickly see that it's eating and drinking. It's reclining on ta at tables. It's walking trails and going on hikes. It's having fish fries at the beach. It's sitting under trees. It's hanging out at weddings and funerals and dinner parties. That is the majority of the time where you can find Jesus. Now, if that doesn't start to shatter some of the ways we've thought of Jesus, it, it ought to. In the Greek world in the first century, this was called a Greek symposium. 
And so often a symposium would be a huge meal and just everybody's invited. It's just an open house. Everyone can kind of come. But then it was followed by a lengthy discussion. And in, in the New Testament, you see reclining at table, right? Um, what it was is that there was actually three sides of a table and you would sit facing this way. So there'd be three sides and we'd all face each other and our feet would be up like this. Right? And we, that's how we would recline and we'd eat and then the discussion would start. And often those three tables would be oriented out to the patio so that people in the community could also be a part of that discussion. That's what's happening here. And that's why the Pharisees are there just kind of watching. They're probably hanging out on the porch Right? How dare, they would, we wouldn't dare go in and hang out with who Jesus is hanging out with. But they're probably hanging out on the porch just waiting to see how they can discredit Jesus by like, oh, look what he said. Oh, did you hear what he said? Did you see what he did there? Oh, did you see who he touched there? Right? That's what's happening. That's the scene. But in the first century, this was so ordinary, yet intimate. This is how they would have a relaxed kind of relational setting. And Jesus meets his disciples there. Now, the Pharisees. What is the Pharisees' deal? Somebody's car alarm. Check your car. What is the Pharisees' problem here? Well, in verse 29 and 30, we see what their problem is. It's not the party itself, because they were aware of this. They were a part of some of these dinner banquets. It's the guest list. Did you notice that? That's the problem. It's not that they're just grumpy and don't like parties. Some of them probably are. Um, some of you are like, why don't I get invited to parties? Maybe that's why, right? It's not just that they don't like parties. It's that they don't like the guest list. Now, you understand who the Pharisees were. They were the most influential Jewish group at the time. Highly educated. They would be very kind of white-collared, wealthy. They would kind of have the cultural halls of power as far as politics and decision-making. And they, their biggest, their biggest flaw is that they saw themselves inside God's graces and everybody else outside. They thought that they had earned their way and deserved God's grace, which ironically means that they did not understand God's grace at all. Amen? Especially how Jesus embodies it. So they're not just triggered by the party. They're triggered by the guest list. And it's two categories of people that we see here, the tax collectors and the sinners. And notice that in the first description of who's there, it says tax collectors and others. But then when the Pharisees say who's there, they say tax collectors and sinners. They don't want to leave it general. They want to make sure that we know that these are morally just terrible people that they do not associate with. Now, tax collectors, on the other hand, couldn't be farther than the Pharisees as far as the social moral ladder. The tax collectors were some of the most hated Jews in society. There was a, an old saying that went around the Roman Empire that, that, um, that they are beasts in human skin. Not what you want, right? But they were some of the most hated Jews in society because they collected taxes for Rome. They took, collected taxes for the empire. And often they would charge extra on top. Not that we experience any of this here, right? But they would charge extra on top and then they would take not just the tax for the empire, but they'd get a cut for themselves. But they were doing it abusing their own people. That's what the ta tax collectors did. So they did not have a good social or moral standing in society at the time. So think like first century Bernie Madoff, right? Or like Ponzi scheme extraordinaire, but in cahoots with Rome and ripping off your own people, where you're from. Like this is your people, your kin. And they're doing it to get rich on the backs of their own people. That, that, those are the tax collectors. And they weren't even allowed in the temple. Their money wasn't accepted in the temple because it was dirty. And they weren't allowed to be witnesses in court because they were just despicable people. 
That's the tax collectors. Now, the other category is sinners, which sounds so general, doesn't it? But in the Pharisees' mind, sinners were anyone that they deemed unclean religiously. So whether it's that they didn't land on the exact theology that they had or didn't like worship the way that they did, they were the sinners. And then they could just have any kind of person packed into that category to be like, well, at least we're not like, like them. And then they would distance themselves from the sinners because they didn't see themselves as the sinners, which is exactly where you see the power of what Jesus said. I didn't come for the righteous, but I came for the sick. They don't see themselves as sick or in need. The beginning of experiencing the gospel is for us to come to the end of ourselves to understand that we can't do this. And the Pharisees thought that they were doing it. So here, when you hear sinners, you got to think the most like morally, relationally, or materially poor people of that time. Lowest on the moral and social ladder. And we still have these kinds of categories in our mind today. And we've got kids in the room, so I can't say some of them. But we still have these categories. So who would you just think of if you just think like, I don't want to associate with any people like that? What would they be like? The most morally repugnant, where you, whether it's in self-righteousness or, or justifiably, you're just like, I can't imagine how they live like that or think like that or believe that. Who is it for you? Because right here, this scene that the Pharisees are witnessing it's like the way that we would feel if we saw Jesus sitting at the table with a white supremacist or a terrorist group like sitting and having a meal with the Taliban or Boko Haram or having a table full of pedophiles or prostitutes. Right away, how do you feel when you think about that scene that you're standing on the porch and you're looking into this meal? And that's exactly how the Pharisees are feeling in this moment because they've misunderstood God's coming close to sinners. And Tim Chester kind of describes the Pharisees' posture here. He says that today's Pharisees might condemn the poor for their dysfunctional families, but lift not one finger to help. Today's Pharisees might condemn the poor for their excessive drinking or substance abuse, but lift not one finger to ease their pain. Today's Pharisees might condemn the poor for their laziness, but not lift one finger to provide employment and opportunity. Today's Pharisees might condemn the poor for their abortions, but not lift one finger to adopt unwanted children or provide supports to parents. The spirit of the Pharisees is alive and well in many circles. But this is not the approach Jesus has with sinners, and he's not the, it's not the approach that he asks his church to have towards sinners. So they're triggered by that, but they're also triggered socially because of the guest list. There's a moral kind of spiritual righteousness that they feel here, but they're also triggered by the guest list because of the, the social implications. So in, in the ancient culture, table fellowship meant that you are marking insiders and outsiders based on the guest list. Who you invited or didn't invite set kind of the social boundary markers for who belonged and who didn't. It was how you kind of demonstrated the haves and the have-nots. Think about the red carpet. There's a reason why I didn't get invited to the Grammys, right? There's a reason. Number one, I can't sing, but also I'm, not, I'm just not invited. There's reasons socially and economically and find out that I'm not there. It was like that. That's what meals did in the first century. That's what meals signal in lots of cultures still in the majority world. 
that there's a boundary marker that happens at the table, and it's a sign of belonging and unity over a meal. Pastor Scotch Barchi sums it up this way. It'll be up here. Watch. It would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era, so Jesus' day. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. This is why Jesus' critics are so triggered by who he ate with. Because to share the table with someone and to share a meal with someone was to accept them. It was to extend an invitation to them belonging. Now listen, before you have kind of the inner critic, there is a difference between accepting someone and approving of everything about that person. Are you with me on that? There is a difference between acceptance and approval. We love to hide behind uh, well, I don't approve of this, so I don't have to accept them. That's not this. Jesus' invitation to the table is unadulterated acceptance, but he doesn't do it so that he can approve of everything that someone thinks or believes or does. He does it so that one day they will move towards actually behaving like someone who has been welcomed into the graces of God. Amen? That's this. You can accept someone without approving of everything that they think and do. In fact, I would argue it is vital to the mission of the church of Jesus Christ. And that's what we see Jesus doing here. At the table. Jesus identifies with sinners at the table. Not so that he can sin with them, but so that he can reach them. So that he can rescue them. So that he can show them tangibly what it looks like to experience the generosity of his grace and love. And that's why he ends and says, I came to call sinners to repentance. He didn't just come to party and have a good time. He did that too. But he came to lead sinners to repentance. Uh, chapter 7, a couple chapters later, uh, Jesus gets called a, a glutton and a drunkard. That's a good one. That's one of my faves, right? And a friend of tax collectors, okay? So just, just don't miss this. Jesus ate and drank so much that he was identified as a glutton and a drunkard. Now, don't, don't mishear me. It doesn't mean that he was a glutton and a drunkard, so we don't take this passage and be like, I'm just going to party and drink in the name of Jesus. But what this is, is that there was something so obvious about the way that Jesus lived that his critics tried to take his eating and drinking and discredit what he was actually about because of it. That's how much it was happening. That has to happen a lot. If, if Jesus is being labeled as a glutton and a drunkard. Not just because he was overeating and getting drunk. He wasn't. But that he was having that be the front-lining posture of how he was inviting sinners to encounter him. So we can't miss it when we see this. Right here in this passage and throughout the Gospels, that eating and drinking was one of the main ways that Jesus extended grace and welcome to sinners. Meals were the way that he captured something very powerful and significant about an invitation to strangers about extending an invitation to experience him and his goodness. So what do we do with this? Well, the early church knew this, and I want to look at one example of the early church, and then we'll apply a couple things and be done. 
But the early church knew this because they watched it modeled with Jesus, right? So the, the disciples walked with Jesus, then they saw him do it, and then they went and actually practiced it too. So watch. The book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. And we see that this is what the church is up to, fresh off the resurrection. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to meals, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together, they were one, and held all things in common, unity. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day, day by day, they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, broke bread from house to house, and they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people around them. Because of this, every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Did you see the repetition of where they are? Did you see how the repetition of the breaking of bread in homes? It was evident that the church, the early church, had the table centered in their rhythm weekly as the church. That the table and meals were the centerpiece of how they experienced community. So what, yes, they got together for, for this kind of thing where they were together in the temple for teaching and, 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 and public gathering, for sure. But then you look and you see what that does. Like, that's the huddle that then sends them out week to week and day to day into the rest of their lives. The Apostle Paul, when he writes letters in the New Testament, he often will say, when you come together to eat. Now, for all of us potluck fans, that's not a potluck. That's literally the gathering of the church that Paul's talking about. Like a meal wasn't just a potluck tacked onto the gathering of the church. The meal was church, where prayer happened and teaching happened and singing happened and, and, and connecting in community happened. It was at a meal. And it's very fascinating. I won't bore you with this, but it was very fascinating. Over the first 300 years of Christianity, the church didn't meet in cathedrals or amphitheaters or auditoriums, but in homes. And when Emperor Constantine showed up and said, I love Jesus now, so I'm going to make this the state religion, church life moved from houses and dinner tables and became more centered in cathedrals and other halls of power within society. And there's a long history of, of that, and there's pros and cons. This is not me saying there's, there's only negative, and, but there's pros and cons to all those changes throughout church history. And you can see it in the changes of church architecture as well. But this has also accelerated over the last 40 years with audiovisual technology and entertainment culture that we live in, where many churches are actually built as theaters, centering the stage and centering the platform. Now, don't have time to get into the pros and cons, although if you want to talk about it, we will nerd out and it'll be very fun. But without a doubt, the table was the center of the earliest church. The Christian community operated around the table as a way to embody something very powerful about the gospel. Now, is the mission of the church more than meals? Yeah, of course it is. But tragically, I think we have lost the central power of the table. And in our post-Christian culture, where non-Christians and secular people coming to this thing to look at a stage and hear me or Ed or anybody else sweat and do this is going to continue to decline, we also need to be more intentional about where we find ourselves and the places of invitation that we strategically can do. We talked about that a bit last week. So I think we have an opportunity here, in other words, to recenter the table. We have an opportunity in our post-Christian culture to recover 
the centrality of hospitality at the table. And I think that with the epidemic of loneliness that we're experiencing in our digital age and the disconnection and the presence of phantom communities on the internet that aren't really flesh and blood communities, I think that table fellowship could be a main antidote to some of the loneliness that we're experiencing. I think it could. I mean, it's just showing now and it's all over the place that the more time we spend on digital platforms, the lonelier we become. Uh, Millennials, like myself, are the loneliest generation yet, yet the most connected online. So something's happening and we're losing the significance of the face-to-face relationship and friendship that the table provides. Um, experts are calling it a loneliness economy now. There's, there's a whole like, economy driven by loneliness. There's a website called rentafriend.com. There's 620,000 people offering their services on rentafriend.com for an hourly wage to just offer companionship and an ear to listen. That's crazy. Like when that's starting to happen, something is wrong. Are you with me on that? That we have to pay $40 an hour to just try to sit with somebody who will actually hear us. Imagine the opportunity the church has in a culture like that. Imagine the opportunity that we have to take the table again and create proximity and presence with others. Bless you. Now, it's not complicated, but we do have to be intentional about it. Okay, so here's two, two things I want to leave us with practically to run out of time. What else is new? I think there's two ways we can think about this. I think the table humanizes people. I read a a book called uh, From Tablet to Table. You can imagine what that book's about, right? By uh, an author called Leonard Sweet. And he said, an untabled faith is an unstable faith. And he goes on to show that our, our culture is hungry for table time, but we're losing the table in the church. We're losing the centrality of the table. So how do we recenter it? Two ways. How do we recenter eating and drinking? Number one, Think about how you're going to use the 21 meals of your week. How are you going to steward and use the 21 meals of your week? Some of you already are like, I don't actually eat 21 times a week because I do intermittent fasting, so whatever. (laughs) But just chill with your self-righteousness and just do some math with me. However many times you eat a week, how can you use those, those meals? to recenter the table and to practice table hospitality? How can you invite others? Remember last week, we talked about strangers. Anybody who is experiencing a strangeness or an unwelcoming, how can you use those meals as 21 opportunities for community and relationship and mission? What does that look like? Now, not all 21, don't hear what I'm not saying, but how can you start to think, maybe I'll tithe some of my meals. Maybe I'll tithe 10% of my meals every week to other people, and I'll start to make it a priority and move towards others, even you intermittent fasters, right? What are those 21 opportunities for hospitality? Whether it's breakfast on the way to work or before work, whether it's just putting your phone down at lunch break, in the cafeteria, at school, or, or in your office lunchroom, inviting friends, Christian and non, into meals, Think about some of the ways that you can draw people together around a table and then start to think intentionally about breaking down barriers and doing that. Now, I mentioned this last week. This takes a little bit of thinking about margin, right? Your life is not set up to do this well right now, I promise you. 
You need to actually intentionally think about building margin into your life so that you can recenter the table and extend hospitality. That means some of us need to think about the margin of time and some of us need to start thinking about the margin of money. Being hospitable sometimes is costly. And there's a generosity that we can practice at the table as hosts, if we are the hosts. So we need to start thinking about building margin into our life and think, how do I use those 21 meals this week? Secondly, finally, how can we think about tables inside our homes and outside our homes? Now, I'll speak to you who don't own homes. Um, We're in good company. Jesus didn't either. He was a millennial. It's great. But if you do have a home and you do have a table that is yours, you got to think about how do you use the table inside your home and practice table hospitality. It's easiest at your house. It is. And yes, I'm inviting myself to dinner. I'm just being like Jesus. Right? It's easiest at your house to practice table hospitality. But if you don't see your house, it's only, it's only possible if you don't see your house as yours. Number one, the bank probably owns it. And number two, as followers of Jesus, we are called to steward everything that we have been entrusted with, including our homes. So what does it look like to steward the tables inside our homes as a welcome to strangers? Now, here's the rub for some of us. And I can, I can, I can read your mind, right? Some, the rub for some of us is that this pushes against the suburban dream of my home being my castle, of my home being my retreat from the crazy people out there. And, don't have time, but suburban like, design and architecture and urbanization actually changed the designs of homes from having porches, wraparound porches, remember those? Out front, where you come out and you'd be like, hey Dave, right, and you do that. Right? We actually moved those to the back because now we have pools and porches in the back. And guess what's out front? A big garage door that you can click a button and do what? Hide before Dave sees you. <laughs> Dave, if you're out there, it's not about you, it's about me. <laughs> but, but the design of our houses and our porches and our garages and our backyards has changed to accommodate the fact that we have thought that our homes belong to us and not to the community. It doesn't. Table hospitality is the way that we actually practice stewardship outwards to our community, not inwards for us to just retreat into our castle. The second rub that you're going to feel on this inside your home is you're going to think about table hospitality as entertainment. I'm entertaining my guests. I'm not saying don't do it well, but entertainment is about performance. But hospitality is about service. Amen? That's the difference. That's the difference. So you do not need your house. Hear this. This is going to be the word for some of you from the Lord this morning. You do not need your house to look like the front window of Buclair or Urban Barn to practice table hospitality. Amen. Yes, we got applause for that one. That's amazing. And for the self-righteous of us whose house already looks like the front window of an urban barn, repent. (laughs) I'm not saying that there's not something about excellence and beauty that we should prioritize in our hospitality. My wife does it very well. But I'm saying that that is not what takes the priority over being open-handed and practicing table hospitality. 
Rosaria Butterfield sums this up here in her book that I referenced last week, Radically Ordinary Hospitality. Listen to what she says. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. We forget that the Christian life is a calling, not a performance. People will die of chronic loneliness sooner than they will from cat hair in the soup. And then she concludes, radically ordinary hospitality means this. Listen, God promises to put the lonely in families and he intends to use your house as living proof. Amen? That's this. Now, to some of us who either our living situation doesn't allow us to have the table inside our homes be the place where we can practice hospitality, whether it's just that your living situation doesn't allow it or you live in a multi-generational home, whatever it is, whether there's other barriers, Jesus didn't own a home and didn't have his own table, but yet was the most hospitable person to walk planet Earth. So it doesn't mean we can't do it. It just means we need to be maybe a little bit more creative about how do we practice table hospitality. Maybe you are the organizer of events for your oikos, your network of friends and, and coworkers and colleagues, right? Whether it's you're the one that's planning the barbecues and the picnics and the restaurants, or you're inviting yourself to other people's houses. Do that, right? Or you're the one to make sure that we use parties as milestones to celebrate people's lives birthdays and graduations and, and job uh, changes and cultural events, seasons, finales of shows that you love. I don't care what it is, just something. And you're the one to organize those events in order to provide an opportunity to practice table hospitality. You can do it. It might take some creativity and being a little bit more innovative, but whether it's a table inside our home or a table outside our home, the call remains the same, that we are called to go after the way of Jesus and practice and prioritize table hospitality so that strangers are invited, accepted, heard, known, and welcomed. Why? So that they taste and see that God is good. Amen? Let me pray for us to this end. Father, on a day like today, we celebrate your generosity as our Heavenly Father. And the topic of hospitality it's just the way that you embody your love towards us. That, Lord, at, at, its, at its foundation, sin isn't just bad stuff that, that we do or things that we say that we shouldn't, but that sin is looking for satisfaction everywhere but at your table. And today, I pray for all of us here. Whether we are already following after you, Jesus, and wanting to practice table hospitality better, or, or for those of us here who have not yet experienced you and your goodness and your grace and your generosity towards us, I pray that today would be the day. I pray that we would answer the call to come to your table and experience your goodness and your grace and your welcoming and your belonging so that we might be rescued by you and changed by you forever. And we ask all these things in the only name that matters. In Jesus' name, amen.